This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It was one of Doug Ford's key election promises. He said that he'd hire... He said that he'd lower hydro rates by 12%. Instead, according to a report by the Financial Accountability Office, residents have been paying 4.3% more on their bills between 2018 and 2021. Now, the government maintains that they've fulfilled their pledge because they say the rates rose less than they would have under the liberals. Okay, that is quite the spin, in my opinion. And for a closer look at what the numbers actually say, I'd like to welcome Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. Hello, thanks so much for being with us. Hello, happy to be here. So uh, you uh, took a good look at this, and you spoke to staff at the Ministry of Energy. What did they tell you? We, when we were doing the analysis, we were looking at all the different subsidy programs. And part of the work was to try to figure out if we could figure out where the 12% was going to come from. And we had discussions with the ministry. They told us that the government intended to show they're meeting the 12% by comparing the cost of electricity now after the government made some changes to what it would have been before. And in fact, what we found is in 2025, uh, residential electricity bills will be 12% lower than they would have been had this government not made the changes they did. Okay. And you're looking at the previous liberal, liberal government's fair hydro plan, or what they called the fair hydro plan, right? That's right. <clears throat> we looked at the fair hydro plan, and uh, and we had done some work in that in the past in terms of projecting what that total cost would be to, in this case, was ratepayers. And what's effectively happened is the government introduced something called the Ontario Electricity Rebate to replace the Fair Hydro Plan. And all that really did was it moved the cost of the subsidy from ratepayers to taxpayers. Yeah, I think people, I mean, the whole issue of electricity rates, frankly, is pretty complicated. And you're lucky if you can read your bill properly in my opinion, but uh, it it's really basically just a shift. We're paying a huge amount of electricity subsidy, except instead of paying it on your monthly bill, you're paying it in your taxes. Exactly right. So the total cost of all of the province's subsidy programs over the next 20 years will run to about $118 billion. And those, oh are, those are big numbers. And this <laughs> fiscal year alone, it'll be about $6.9 billion. That'll reduce gradually <clears throat> over the next 20 years. But it's, it's still a very, very large number. And you're right. That's exactly what's happened. Not only is it being paid for through taxes, uh, because we run deficits in this province, money has to be borrowed to pay for these programs. So, in fact, one could say that we're borrowing money to pay for these. So how much would we have paid in subsidies under the Liberal plan? So the Liberal plan... Uh, would have seen this fiscal year uh, the electric. So, if you're as a rate payer, your rate your bill would have been 29% higher in this fiscal year than it would have been uh, under the. Uh, sorry, in the Liberal plan, it would have been 29% higher than it is now. The total cost of these subsidies to sort of not just replace the fair hydro, but also introducing um, a renewables uh, piece as well. I'll talk about that in a minute. So that's around $54 billion odd dollars over the course of the 20-year period, which is incremental to what it would have been under the Liberals. Uh, so uh, so you would have paid more on your bill and less on your taxes? Well, I can't talk about less on the taxes. Um, that, that we don't look at that. This would have been more on the bill. So that, that amount of money has been moved over to the tax base. The government will pay for that as part of its regular, you know, borrowing uh, treasury management program. And we didn't obviously look at the the specific impact on, on taxes, but effectively that is going to be the result. 
And in terms of what we do see on our bills, uh, do you have projections? So it's 4.3% more now. Uh, is, is that increase going to be going up? That'll change. So what part, part of what this program does is it, it commits to increase electricity bills by, by 2% per year. So that up until 2040. So that's what the subsidy programs will commit to. So it's been 4.3 up until now. Then the changes were made to the programs recently. Going forward for the next until 2040, people's electricity bills will increase by, the government is committed to keeping the increase to 2% per year. Uh, as the financial accountability officer, do you, uh, I, do you have an opinion or do you accept the explanation? We're not actually lowering bills. We're, we're just, uh, it's, it's just lower than it would have been if you had elected the other guys. Well, I think we don't, uh, part of the mandate isn't to judge whether or not governments are keeping their promises. That's certainly something that's best left to voters. What we do is we look at the cost of all of these programs. And we also, the other important piece on this report is to show where some of the benefits are going. So there are there are nine different uh, subsidy programs, and the two really big ones, the Ontario Energy Rebate and the remo- Renewables Cost Shift, those both subsidize folks for consuming electricity. So the more electricity you consume, the more money the government will subsidize on your electricity bill. There are other programs that help you if you are living in a northern or a rural area where your distribution costs might be higher. If you are lower income, there are programs to help you address the cost of electricity to keep it affordable within your income bracket. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it's uh, an interesting report, and thanks very much for bringing that to light. All right. Well, that's, that's what we love to do. Okay. Peter Weltman, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for having me. Okay. Well, now let's get some reaction. So people, do you accept that explanation? Well, it's not 12% lower. It's 12% lower than it would have been under the liberals. What do you think? Do you accept that? Uh, the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Peter Tabbins, who is an NDP MPP and the energy critic in the party, as well as Paul Accioni, a senior management consultant with over 48 years of engineering and management experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Good to be with you. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Uh, Let's start with Peter. Uh, Do you accept that explanation? Well, I I think that the financial accountability officer has done a good job looking at what's going on. But I have to tell you, in the 2018 election, I, I read the Tory platform, and there was no talk about will have a lower bill than you would have gotten if the Liberals get elected. No, they said they were going to cut hydro rates by 12% uh, by returning the Hydro One dividend payment to families. Uh, they were going to eliminate the enormous salaries of the Ontario Power Generation Hydro One. Uh, they were going to uh, stop bearing the price tag for conservation in your hydro bills and pay out of general government revenue, um, and that they would reduce hydro rates by 12%. Well, they didn't. Uh, this whole thing now, they've realized that they aren't delivering on any of those promises, and they've looked around what's a convenient way to explain what's going on, and so they've latched on to, well, it would have been higher if we hadn't been elected. Well, that's not what they said in 2018. They said, we'll cut your bill by 12%. Not that it'll be better than the liberals would have delivered if you keep them in power. So uh, it was a scam then, and it's been revealed now thoroughly to be a complete and total scam. Uh, your counterpart, uh, Stephen Del Duca, the liberal, uh, he says uh, they were just lying. Is it, 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 Would you characterize it that way? I think lying is a good good term. Uh, <laughs> I, scam is a pretty good term as well. Take your pick, Libby. Uh, dishonesty is dishonesty. Uh, okay, let us move on to um, Paul Accioni. What do you make of an explanation like that? Well, I guess uh, we have to step back a little bit and uh, look at the original projections uh, that were made in 2017. The Engineering Society um, here in Ontario has been cautioning the previous government that their estimates of electricity uh, prices were grossly under understated. 
when they announced a 1% increase per year for for the change in policy that brought in renewables, the Engineering Society contacted them and said, look, the number is going to be closer to 10% a year. And uh, they didn't believe us. They, <laughs> they, they continued to, to uh, put out cost reports which were grossly under understated, and we found out later that, that it was closer to 10% a year. That's under the Liberals. Under, under the Liberals, yeah. And, and the, reason, the reason they didn't understand that is they didn't understand how the electrical system works. Uh, wind, wind and solar, which they ramped up rapidly, are unreliable energy sources. They, they only come, come when, when the wind blows or the sun shines. But people want reliable electricity. And to make uh, renewables reliable, you need, you need to add a whole bunch of other things to the system to make that power reliable, and that adds a significant higher cost than people see when they look at the contract prices. When you look at a contract prices for a solar farm or a nuclear plant, it looks like the solar farm is cheaper. But what they don't realize is there's huge costs associated with making that unreliable power reliable. And we tried to, we tried to bring that to the uh, attention of the Liberal government, and they kept, kept ignoring us. And then when the costs started coming through, people went crazy because they said, what, what the hell is going on here? And what it is is the cost of making that unreliable power reliable is much higher than the contract cost of that power. So what, what you see in the report, the current report with the, F, uh, the Financial Accountability Office, is the original projections of the liberal, liberal government of what the cost will be in the future. But they're grossly understated. So, so what, what happened to the poor, <laughs> well, I guess I'm, I, I don't know whether they're poor or not poor, but what happened to the conservatives when they took over power is they discovered to their horror <laughs> that, that there's a huge bunch of costs that, that are not on the books when you look at the contract costs for these things. One of them is the backup required to, to, to make the power reliable. Another one is higher transmission costs because they have low capacity factors. Another one is curtailment. When, when there's too much wind and too much sun, you have to back off. And these people get paid. They're take-or-pay contracts. They get paid even when you don't use the power. So there's huge curtailment costs for, for the stuff that's wasted or exported to the Americans at very low prices. You're still paying the full price for the stuff when you export it. So all of these costs, <laughs> all of these costs have to be paid for. And, and, and the, the new government discovered to their horror that, that basically they got, they got a set of books that were under, understating the actual costs. And, and so they didn't immediately discount the rates 12% because they were looking for a way to, to, to reduce costs so they could, they, could, they could satisfy their promise. And I guess, I guess it took them a few, <laughs> few years to figure out what they had to do. One, one, of course, was to cancel all the renewable contracts that they hadn't signed because it was driving costs further and further up. So that's one thing they did. Uh, the, the, other, uh, the other thing they did was they gave the, the, the commercial side their 12% right away. I think it was 14 and 16% according to the Financial Accountability Office. They gave the, the business community their, their, their more than 12% because they wanted to stimulate jobs in Ontario. And I think to some extent that, that was a successful strategy. But for the average residential consumer, they had, they had to struggle to find a, a, a way to get the cost for the, for the residential consumer down, and it took them a few years to figure it out. I, that's uh, that's very interesting. Uh, what I read in all of that is, um, uh, in your opinion, maybe not so bad that they explained it uh, the way they explained it, which is, uh, I guess, a lot less complicated than the way you just explained it. Yeah. Well, uh, they, they, they said that then it, what it would have been, but people never knew that the cost would be higher than, than what was projected. And the Financial Accountability Office took the old liberal projections as if they're gospel. Uh, by the way, there's a, there's a little fine print at the back of the report for those of you who want to read it. And they said that they used the IESO projection for the future cost of electricity from the IESO, the grid operator. And yet they pointed out that in the past, the average cost of that power was rising 5.5% per year. 
and the Financial Accountability Office use 0.7% future inflation rate. Well, we know there's 5% inflation rate this year. It isn't 0.7. So, so what, they, what they caution at the end of the report, which never, never made it to the press, the Financial Accountability Office cautioned is that if, if the rates go up faster than they predicted, the 0.7% per year, then they will under, underestimate the discount that people re- will receive with the new government policy, and they will underestimate the total cost of the subsidies. And that's an important point, is that if inflation going forward is more than 0.7% for electricity costs, then this report will understate the benefit and understate the cost of that program. Hmm. Peter, uh, what do you make of what Paul is saying? Well, I think Paul's being entirely too generous with the Conservative government on this. Believe me, by 2017, 2018, 2018 is when uh, Doug Ford made his promise. People knew what the system cost. They knew how it operated. Anyone who was following the energy file knew how things were going. I'll give you an example, though, of where I think both the Liberals and Conservatives put the ratepayer last and the owners, the private owners and investors first. Um, Libby, when the Liberals sold off Hydro One, uh, they gave the, the new private company a $2.8 billion tax gift, a bonus, uh, a gift that they could carry away, give to investors. Um, in the legislature, we opposed that. We said, no, if there's $2.8 billion being given to Hydro One, that money should actually go back to all their customers to reduce their bills. Liberals didn't act on it. Conservatives come into power. The $2.8 billion is still scheduled to go into the hands of the investors. And the Conservatives had the power, still have the, had the power to say, no, no, that money, that windfall goes to the customers. And they didn't. The, the problem we have throughout is that big private owners, big private companies get consideration and support first, and last in line are the people who pay the bills, the majority Peter, of Ontarians. Peter, do you think that it's appropriate that uh, a whole bunch of cost uh, was shifted to taxpayers from ratepayers? Well, that's what happened overall with the approach both the Liberals and and the Tories took. I mean, the, the Liberals initially said it would just be stuck with the ratepayers, but eventually, if you're looking at hydro bills going up 6% a year, they would have moved as well. I think, Libby, the fundamental issue is uh, how do we get excess profit out of the system? How do we change the system so it's being run for the benefit of the people of Ontario and not for those investors who think they can make a killing on selling electricity in this province? And I think that's the fundamental question. The Conservatives are not interested in taking on that question. The Liberals certainly weren't. Uh, if you're going to actually have affordable power in Ontario again, you have to have public ownership of that system. You have to have a system that's not driven by profit, by, but driven by how do we build this province? How do we make it commercially attractive? How do we have rates that will say to people, yeah, we should operate a factory there because it's an affordable place to be. How do we have a province where people can afford to pay their hydro bills? And I would say that both the Liberals and the Tories have an approach that's the opposite. How do we make sure that the investors get the maximum bang for their buck? How do they get the most out of the system? Paul, do you uh, do you agree with that analysis, or is the problem, as you said, that that they when they made the contracts, they didn't take into account the added costs? Well, let, let, let's say uh, both. I think uh, Peter is, is right that if you get an organization owned by the government that's running well and you privatize it, the costs will go up for, for two reasons. One is their financing costs. Well, actually, three reasons. One is their financing costs are higher as a private company than a, than a public company. Secondly, there's profits to be paid. And thirdly, there's federal taxes to be paid. Because if the province owns the company, there's no taxes to be paid to the federal government. Whereas when you privatize it, they have to pay taxes to both the provincial and the federal government. So Peter is right that, that a government well-run organization will run at lower cost than a privately well-run organization. Uh, 
people like to privatize government organizations because they think government organizations are not run well. But if you get one that is run well and you privatize it, the cost will go up. So he's right there. The the other question about the hidden cost: the hidden costs are there. I'm sorry, uh, they have to be paid for. So if if you throw on unreliable sources of power onto the grid, you're going to be paying huge hidden costs, and it'll drive electricity rates up. So. We we have to be careful about what we put on the electricity system. The electricity system is is not only very complicated, but people demand a very high level of reliability for electricity because electricity runs the entire economy. You you can't cut the power off. Yeah, can I just add in and, sure. and I, Paul, I appreciate your commentary about the extra costs that people get stuck with when you take a well-run public system and make it private, um, but. One thing that's really important, and Libby, Paul mentioned this, uh, before Hydro One was not paying taxes to the federal government. All, all of their profit came back to the people of Ontario. And now we are paying taxes to the federal government. That's an increase in costs that people have buried in their hydro bills. So I, I think that the decision to sell off Hydro One and to keep it sold off was one that people are paying for. And again, I will say, and I, here's where I disagree with Paul. Um, we knew in 2017 and 2018 how the system worked. It was not, uh, hidden. Uh, we had, uh, a range of generation technologies. We had our power lines in. We, we've been putting in new power lines. Uh, but it wasn't as though this was a mystery. And the Ford government, the Ford, uh, Conservative Party in 2018 promised this 12% hydro cut for people uh, by returning the Hydro One dividend payments to families. Well, I don't think I've seen any of that. I mean, I, the financial accountability officer didn't find that uh, in their study going on. Uh, there were no big cuts in the salaries of the senior executives at Ontario. No, College there weren't. Pardon? There weren't. After all of that huffing and puffing about the $6 million man, um, the salaries are still pretty eye-popping. Yeah, they are. So uh, let, let's face it. This was just, well, I'll call it a scam to be gentle. This was a scam in their their uh, election program, uh, one that has been shown to be totally empty and just uh, a joke, a trick played uh, on the I'll, people of I'll, Ontario. I'll let it go, uh, let the word scam go. I don't know about scam. Politicians uh, make promises that don't happen all the time. Uh, Paul Accioni, last 20 seconds to you. Well, I, I, uh, I know everybody is annoyed uh, when, uh, when they have to pay higher electricity prices, but let me leave you with just one uh, little, little thing. Uh, there's a public consultation going on right now the government is thinking of putting in a very low overnight electricity rate. That will be a marvelous thing if they go ahead and do it. Uh, and I encourage uh, people to call their members of provincial parliament, say they like the idea of a low overnight electricity rate, because it'll allow you to charge your electric vehicles at one-tenth the cost of, of the uh, on-peak rates. That's the current thinking. And uh, and that will be an enormous reduction in their electricity bill if they buy an electric uh, vehicle. And uh, so they'll be getting a, essentially a, a deep discount on their electricity prices. And for those of you who want to plug in some electric heaters at night uh, to offset your propane heating oil or, or whatever natural gas, you, you, you can do that and get a discount on your uh, fossil fuel bill. So hopefully that's coming. The, the public consultations are starting this week. And uh, and uh, that that should result in a deep discount to your electricity rates at night, which uh, if people take advantage of it, they can see their electricity bills go way down. Okay, good tip. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, people, uh, we can take this up again tomorrow. Do you like the explanation that the government offered for that 12%? that you didn't get. Uh, thanks so much, Paul Accioni and Peter Tabbins. Thanks, thanks Libby. Libby. Take care. Take care. Uh, take care. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the emergency debate on the Emergency Act um, that is underway right now. Last time I looked, and lots of controversy coming out of that. Uh, 
We'll take your calls on it, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. When we re- You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There is a heated debate going on in Parliament right now over the Emergencies Act. The opposition conservatives and the Bloc Québécois call it a huge overreach they will not support. Even the NDP, which is backing the government on this, says it's necessary because Justin Trudeau let the protests go on for weeks without doing anything. Not all the premiers are on side. The first ministers of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, and Nova Scotia say it's not necessary in their provinces. Not surprisingly, they're all conservatives, but Doug Ford here in Ontario is behind Ottawa on this. Meanwhile, a new Maru, a public opinion poll shows that a majority of Canadians, two-thirds, support Trudeau's move, and as many as 82% say these protests should not have been allowed to go on for as long as they have. Well, what do you think? Do we need this Emergencies Act? Um, why do we need it? Do you think it's an overreach? The numbers to call, 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And now I'd like to welcome David Tarrant, Vice President of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise, Christine Van Gyne, the Litigation Director uh, at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, John, let's begin with you. You conducted that poll, and it shows uh, something quite different, I think, than what we see when we're looking at at the politicians debating this. Well, it's a complicated issue, and we explained to people when we did the polling what it was all about, and I, I think... There's a number of different things that go into it. First of all, Canadians are incredibly frustrated that this has gone on as long as it has. Um, You can see a a real anger that the institutions themselves have become apparently impotent. The backdrop for all of this is not just the Windsor Bridge or Coots in Alberta. It's it's primarily uh, downtown Ottawa with a backdrop of the Parliament buildings where allegedly the most powerful minister, uh, you know, in the country uh, can't come out in front and sort of say, get off my lawn. It's just not happening. And so he's impotent from doing that because he can't direct the police. I guess the question would be whether or not this, in its in its actual making, is to put the RCMP on, on the same civilian, civilian police footing as everybody else so they can all go and do what they have to do with the job. But I think that the public is supporting this very symbolically. They don't understand the details of it. Uh, oftentimes uh, in politics, people don't. Mr. and Mrs. French Porch have heard about this, but the sentiment underlying it by at least between 70 and 80 percent of the public is stop this. It's gone on long enough. I don't care what it's about anymore, or you should be able to remove them. And that's the frustration. So the prime minister brought in something which may be, everybody may be right. It may be a complete overreach when in fact what's necessary is the police to move in and do something. But to the Canadian public, their growing anger, their growing frustration on the impotence of politicians and the institutions over the last number of weeks have now accepted this as yet another tool. They may not understand it, but you know, a tool to end this because they see the consequences of it and they see the impotence of the institutions to deal with it. David Tarrant, I mean, one of the things uh, people looking at this say, hey, uh, the blockades at the Ambassador Bridge and in Coots were resolved without the Emergencies Act. Yeah, I mean, well, in the case of uh, the Ambassador Bridge, I mean, the province declared a state of emergency. Yeah. And, and those emergency powers did help um, uh, uh, police forces w- w- with that situation. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the ultimate situation, the ultimate sin, for want of a better word, of the federal government and, or the city of Ottawa or of, of Ottawa police is 
they were clearly uh, unprepared. They clearly did not had no uh, underestimated the the uh, the intensity uh, of of, the, of this of this occupation and protest movement. They were caught off guard, and by the time uh, you know, uh, and by the time they they wrapped their head around what 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 had happened, the protesters were dug in, and so. You know, this is not a strategy, Libby. Like, like, like. You know, I, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, and he's and he's worried about our civil liberties. I said, "Is this like a plan to erode our civil liberties?" I'm like, no. This is a politician who completely lost the plot in terms of a massive uh, a security breakdown on his front doorstep, and and they're grasping at solutions um, uh, in order to to maintain both public safety and public confidence, and and that's a real concern here. Like. Like this is this is this is all reactive. It's all dictated by public opinion, uh, and and um, it's not actually driven with, with any kind of long term plan about how do we restore order and protect the public. Christine Van Gyne, if it is reactive, and it certainly it would appear to be that way, that they're just trying to figure anything out to do it. Um, it's kind of hard to believe that this is part of some nefarious plot to, to uh, you know, um, cancel our civil liberties. Um, why do you think it's dangerous? I think that this is dangerous because this is extraordinary legislation. Um, it gives the federal government special powers to deal with emergencies. It puts the federal government into provincial jurisdiction. Uh, and that's why the threshold for invoking this legislation is so high. And we don't want to be in a situation where our governments govern by emergency order. And we've seen this creepingly increasing throughout the past two years. And this is kind of the pinnacle of that. There are restrictions within that legislation, within the Emergency Act, that limit when it can apply. Very clear restrictions, and and they're simply not met in this play, in in this instance. Uh, for example, the legislation requires that the emergency seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Canada. I've seen the fourteen-page document that the government is going to be tabling, laying out their evidence in support of invoking the emergency. I still do not think that that threshold has met. And those terms, the security of Canada, that's defined in the legislation as well. And and it does not meet any of those definitions. Another thing that's required by the legislation is that the crisis exceed the capacity or authority of the province to deal with it before uh, the cabinet can declare a public welfare emergency as they as they're doing here. And we've we've seen the the bigger problems in my opinion are the the bridges and the border crossings. We've seen those cleared using uh, existing legislation, whether it be the the invocation of a state of emergency in Ontario or just the use of normal policing powers to clear those. And it's it's not justified to use these extraordinary powers of declaring a national emergency when we can see it can be dealt with during using existing legislation. Well, it was dealt with uh, at those other locations. Uh, it's not being dealt with in Ottawa. And Ottawa, of course, has this mix of, of jurisdictions. And they seem to be completely uh, incapable of solving the situation in Ottawa. Uh, John, uh, is, was there any kind of recognition of that in the work that you did? Well, there's lots of recognition that, that nothing in Ottawa with the backdrop of, you know, the protesters in the parliament buildings is, is, is being done. I mean, what it's done, and I think we will see over the next couple of days, is it's undermined in, in polling that we're releasing in the next day. It's undermined the whole sense of peace, order, and good government. It's, it's, it's undermined the whole sense of the authority of law. It's undermined the sense that there's laws for some people, but not for others. I mean, it, it, it wasn't passing strange that yesterday, uh, a woman who went to the Ottawa hospital put a picture up on Twitter that went bananas. That was a picture of her getting a parking ticket. Uh, I mean, you just look at it across the country. Yeah, no, but, but it, 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 it was. And, and, and I think that 
again, I, I don't disagree with anything that's being said on the actual mechanics of this legislation. I, I'm not an expert in it, but I don't disagree with it. I think it's a policing issue. And, and the question is, in the minds of Canadians, what does it take to do what they're going that they need to clear off a street? Because it's a challenge to the ability of law to enforce things to protect people. I will say this, though. Uh, the I suspect that the 1,500 police officers or whoever they are, and the RCMP now are somewhere out in the north, you know, outside of Ottawa, some probably some army base. They've got all the intelligence they need. We watched them this morning walk through that area, handing out pamphlets saying, "You better leave or else." The question now, in my mind, is is when does that take place, and what form of of ouster does it produce? And that'll be the next phase for where this is. And maybe after Ottawa gets cleared out, it'll become less of an issue about the act. And who knows, it might just fizzle. But it's it's certainly bringing in a bit of a sledgehammer to deal with something that's on the front lawn that rightly so was said here should have been dealt with police in the first place. Well, yeah, I mean, that was a total fiasco. And, and at the moment, like as... Christine pointed out and I pointed out in on, in the other locations, this was dealt with without emergency measures. And here we have emergency measures and we're seeing the cops hand out pamphlets. So I don't know. Let's take a call from Anne in Toronto. Hello, Anne. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Um, I get a little tired of, you know, everybody's rights. Uh, to to freedom, et cetera. And I don't think this is the instance at all. I think at the beginning, we no one was sure exactly how this was going to present itself. I think at first, ignoring them, they thought that they would eventually go away. The group that's in Ottawa right now, and listen, I don't know a lot about everything, but I listened to Bill Blair yesterday. What's happened is this group has changed. How It's not easy to deal with fired-up people in big vehicles. This, these people are not just on the street. So they have to be careful about starting anything with violence. But Bill Blair was saying yesterday, and we've all been reading in the paper, who's behind all of this? And Bill said, you have to follow the money. And there's a, a large percentage of money that's come in from across the border. Yep, we know we, we know that, And So just to uh, drill... Drill down on this. You you think that it's a good idea. You're uh, you're okay with the Emergencies Act, right? What else can you do with these people? They're not ordinary citizens. Okay, expressing their rights. Thank they you, Anne, for that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know that's uh, definitely showing what the poll shows that most people are on board. I think most most people probably are thinking like, do whatever to get rid of this, because this is really terrible for the people in Ottawa. Let's take a call from Paul and Barry. Hello, Paul. Hi, Libby. I enjoy your show. Thank you. Here's my comments. We don't, uh, we didn't listen to history here. On January 6th, the insurrection in the capital in the U.S., it wasn't the police that got rid of the demonstrators. It was the military. They called in the National Guard. As soon as the soldiers showed up with real rifles, the demonstrators left. And that's what has to happen here. We should learn from history. Okay, Paul. Well, we have a very different country here. Um, let's go to Chris, Christine. I mean, you know, what What do you think, uh, again, people just want this to end and they don't see a nefarious purpose? Look, I want to respond to something that one of your one of your callers said first, which is that we need to learn from history. And I think that we do need to learn from history. The Emergencies Act was enacted to replace the Discredited War Measures Act, which was used during the Second World War to intern Japanese Canadians and Italian Canadians. And it was used by the Prime Minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, during the FLQ crisis. Right. This new act was drafted carefully and narrowly to ensure that the federal government can't again abuse emergency powers the way they did under the War Measures Act. But yet this government is abusing that legislation. They're declaring a state of emergency um, when, when, when the threshold criteria under that very, very extraordinary legislation is not met. What, what's required is something, a situation that seriously endangers the lives, health, and safety of Canadians in proportions or nature that to exceed the capacity or authority of a province. And 
sorry, or to seriously threaten the ability of the government to preserve sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity. That is an incredibly, incredibly high threshold. And when we talk about the law applying to the protesters, of course it applies. Of course it's time for the protesters to go home. Of course it's time to end the the, the occupation of this this portion of Ottawa. But I will say on the same hand, the law also applies to the Prime Minister and to the Cabinet of Canada. The, the, the Prime Minister is also subject to the rule of law. Everybody should obey the law, whether it is the truckers who are protesting on Wellington Street or the Prime Minister sitting in Parliament. So those are two really, really important points that I I, I really want to emphasize. Okay, Uh, we've got to take a break. Everybody hang on. We'll be back on the other side of the break. Before we go, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm trying to make this question simple. Do you support... Uh, the fact that the Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act. And uh, I th- do you hope that this will end it? We'll drill down on that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. So we're talking about the Emergencies Act and we're talking about the crisis ongoing in Ottawa. And the opposition has been blaming the prime minister and saying, hey, part of the problem is that or the problem is they say that he vilified the people in those truckers convoys. He called them racists and misogynists. Uh, what he actually said yesterday is that he accused conservatives who support those truckers or say they're proud of them of standing with people who wave swastikas. Okay. And, uh, in fact, inadvertently, though it may have been, we did see conservatives standing in front of a Canadian flag that had a swastika on it. Okay. But that was, you know, that was not a moderate thing to say. So I like you to listen to the exchange that followed. Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who be able to get their lives back. These illegal protests need to stop, and they will, Mr. Speaker. I am a strong Jewish woman and a member of this house and a descendant of Holocaust survivors, and I have never made to, it's never been singled out, and I have never been made to feel less, except for today, when the Prime Minister accused me of standing with swastikas. I think he owes me an apology. I'd like an apology, and I think he owes an apology to all members of this house. Okay, so uh, does he owe an apology? Was what he said... uh too inflammatory. And what about what Melissa Lansman said? Uh, does she personally need an apology? Is she grandstanding there? David Tarrant. She wasn't grandstanding, Libby. It's, it's, it's utterly disgusting what the prime minister did. You know, we go back to before he ran for ran as as uh, the liberal leader of prime minister. He, he titled his memoirs Common Ground. Uh, but here you have a guy, you know, the prime minister has never in his life born into immense power wealth and privilege. He has never, ever had anyone target him or look down at him for who he was. And it's a little bit personal for some of us. Let me, my wife and children are Jewish. Um, uh, for him to invoke uh, that uh, a Jewish woman asking him a question is somehow standing with swastikas is exactly the kind of, of beyond the pale, disgusting, divisive rhetoric that has led to the, the polarization in Canada. And I know liberal apologists will come out and say, oh, it's all imported from Fox News or, or you know, dark money from abroad. We have a, a prime minister who for years has used divisive rhetoric to maintain his hold on power. And now he's actually, uh, I don't care if, he, if, if whether it, if, if, if she was one of many or, or, or just a single person, you do not, it, he has no place as someone who's never faced the kind of hatred Jewish people face. Stand up in the public, and accuse a Jewish woman of standing with swastikas. Well, he, he didn't... Race, he didn't uh, sing, and sing in, a, in, a, in a prime ministership full of low moments, this could be his lowest. John, what do you think? 
Well, I want to listen. I, I don't want to comment much on Melissa, except that with her delivering, you know, the the question and his response, it was it was wrong. But you know, when you look back over the last many months, especially from the gravel throwing incident at the bus, where this became part of the rhetoric of of the campaign for the prime minister, and then continued on afterwards. I look at the numbers and say that we now have about 9% of people in this country who have refused to become vaccinated. I always say on your show, I'm triple vaxxed. I'm in favor of vaccinations. I've known people who have survived it. I've had it in my household. Okay, all that sort of stuff. But I think there's another side to this, and that is you cannot take roughly 4 million people in this country, vilify them, fire them, um, you know, call them every name in the book, um, you ban them from society, make them feel like they're completely outcast and not expect some kind of pushback. And that's kind of what we've got here. We've, you know, it started out as a group of truckers, but it actually now has become a vessel for all of this other anger. And, and in the poll that comes out tomorrow, a majority of people think actually that the premiers cave to all of these, these, these truckers. Look, I, I think the rhetoric has been off the charts and not necessary. I think the rhetoric that the prime minister has been wielding in all of this, I come from an era, I'm old enough to remember that uh, the constitutional debates with his father, with Rennie Levesque sitting on one side and and uh, Peter Lougheed across the table with Bill Davis. And all. Like I, I was a parliamentary intern during that time. And guess what? There wasn't this kind of language. He, his father went through the Jean-Baptiste days and stood his ground, but still was able to be the adult in the room and put the country together. I'm disappointed as a Canadian that we can't have some kind of dialogue on this stuff. But to think that that kind of rhetoric is not going to have some kind of response, I guess I just look at the prime minister's numbers, which would be probably 28% support overall for an election that were held yesterday, and, and a mere 17% in terms of how he's acted on this. And I say, how's it working for you so far? Not that great. Hmm. Interesting. I'm, I was looking for some tweets that I saw that were uh, from other Jewish people not supportive of Melissa Lansman. But it, it seems that we've gotten to this really nasty place. On the one hand, I'm seeing people saying, oh, you know, it was only a little swastika. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and the prime minister, you know, putting everybody in that basket, which I guess is not helping. So, in the context of that, I guess the question is, will the Emergencies Act finally put an end to this? Because, again, it doesn't look like the police are moving. David. Uh, well, listen, um, uh, the most concerning thing I saw in John's research, Libby, was the percentage of Canadians who are almost rooting for state-sanctioned violence against the occupiers. And it's almost like this power fantasy. Oh, we hate those guys. And, and you kind of draw a picture in your mind of what all these guys, they're all a bunch of MAGA hats wearing good old boys, and you can't wait for the, the, to send the, the German shepherds and the pepper spray and the billy clubs after them. And, oh, won't that be great? Won't that be great theater? When a government turns violence against its own citizens, it's not going to be surgical. It's not going to be precise. And there's going to be uh, images that are that are fundamentally disturbing, and will further deepen the polarization and hatred in this country. And so, a lot of people who are rooting for mass violence against occupations, um, be careful because you might get what you wish for. Um, listen, there, there are things in the Emergency Act, you know, and, and Christine's point, I do not take I do not take lightly, like 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 are, that are serious. Um, I've always maintained that. The most important thing any authorities, all over the government can do is try to starve these people out. Cut them off from funding, cut them off from supplies, cut them off from being able to come and go from, 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 the, from the occupation site. Um, you know, everything you can to make it as uncomfortable is and difficult it, to stay but there. Isn't that and what they're doing? The emergency orders about the banking system and freezing their access to funds. Um, you know, I think that might actually help in this regard. Yeah, but isn't isn't that what they're doing? They've kind of stressed that that this uh, they're not bringing in the military and that this isn't a carte blanche for violence. Hopefully, hopefully that hopefully that maintains the case. Uh, I was mainly reacting the fact that the number of people and, and John and I'm you sure you've heard it on your show, Libby. And certainly, I think you know I let John speak to his own numbers, but I read his reports with great interest. 
that there seems to be a, a, a significant number of Canadians who are, if not enthusiastic, are certainly accepting that this could end or should end with, with some sort of violence or some sort of conflict. And um, that that's an ending that doesn't end well for any of us out here. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, they can do things like freeze our access to funding, freeze our access to financing, freeze our access to supplies, uh, control their mobility, and eventually... Uh, they'll have no choice but to, but to dissipate. But I mean, th- that'd be my preferred outcome here. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, I. Th- if that takes a long time, I don't think the people of Ottawa uh, are on board with that. Let's take uh, before we wrap things up. Let's take one more call from Daryl in Ottawa. Hi, Daryl. Hi, I'm in Toronto actually. Oh, sorry. This is where it's peaceful. Um, to me, this is just none of these people there voted liberal in the last election, I'm pretty sure, and none of them plan to vote again. So I really don't see the mob as much different than as the other gentlemen stated. Uh, it's the Canadian light version of what happened in, in Washington when they stormed the Capitol building. And as for, you know, using violence against them, if these people were confronted, my sense is they're the ones that are going to be starting the violence. And, you know, as long as they're being tolerated and not confronted and think they're having a great party at this they're getting away with it, but they're basically there to overturn the results of a legitimate election because their guy didn't get in. And as for the, uh, the, the Jewish woman who's insulted by Trudeau, I'm Jewish, and I didn't see any conservatives or any of the good salt-of-the-earth people that are there going up to the guy with the Confederate flag or the swastikas and say, you know what, That's not, that shouldn't be part of this. So they're all just, you know, providing cover and everything. And personally, I think they should cordon off the area, not let anybody in or out, no fuel, no diesel, no gas, no water, no food, and have a checkpoint and tell the people, you know, you've got this amount of time to move out peacefully. Otherwise, you're going to be contained in here and you end up going out with a police, you know, in a police car and your vehicles will be seized. Okay, Daryl, uh, we're out of time. Thank you very much for that. Okay, we are basically out of time. I'm going to give each of our panelists 15 seconds, starting with Christine. Uh, in 15 seconds, I'd say that the police and government have a, a lot of existing tools under the criminal code, which have been used effectively on the Ambassador Bridge. We don't we don't need to invoke the Emergency Act to deal with this. John Wright. I think three things. Number one is what your listeners have said or your callers have said when they call it have correctly captured the tone. Uh, number two, I think the police went through this morning. You didn't see it because they were handing out leaflets, basically reading the last rights to these people, saying if you're not out, you're going to deal with the, you know, the consequences. And thirdly, I don't think you should underestimate the desire for people to oust the people who are in front of the Parliament buildings. And if it comes to, you know, some difficulties on the ground, we may see in the aftermath of this the public saying it was brought upon them, much like your your, your caller said so. David, last fifteen seconds. Maybe I'd say that Canada's divisions and Canada's problems run a lot deeper than a bunch of yahoos and clowns who are dug in in front of Parliament Hill. There's a deeper challenge to social cohesion. And uh, in, 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 in how the government chooses to clear out these protesters, which is a very singular challenge in the city of Ottawa, that, that's quite shameful, um, it runs a risk of deepening the, the polarization divisions that are paralyzing our country coast to coast. Okay. Thank you all. David Tarrant, Christine Van Gyne, and John Wright and people. I think we will continue this conversation tomorrow on Free for All Friday. Lots of different opinions, lots of division, lots of interest. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.